Mini Culture is back for season eight. We have a special duty to take on this fight on behalf of the state and the people of Minnesota. On this season, we are digging deep into Minnesota's history. The more that I was told that no one knew, the more I wanted to get into it. We thought we'd give it a try. We didn't have anything to lose. We're getting up close and personal with the outdoors. And then I really viscerally remember the feeling of the thunder, which was just so loud. We're going to meet some of the people who changed our art scene forever. And he said, no, what we're doing is instant theater. It's theater, it just happens to be without a script. So it was people like Peter that helped put Minneapolis on the map. And so much more. People were brilliant then as they are now. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. It's all coming up this season on Mini Culture. I'm your host, John Gibertatios. Have you ever been so passionate about something that it consumed your every waking moment? Have you ever turned that passion into a job? Well, that's what happened to Peter Jesperson. In the 70s and 80s, he helped shape the Minneapolis punk and new wave scene. KFAI's Todd Melby went to visit Jesperson in California. Oh, and just as a warning, this version of the podcast does include some profanity. It's punk music after all. When Peter Jesperson was a young man, he managed one of the most raucous and talented rock bands in America. The replacements. One night in 1985, I said, Oh, geez, can you show me where the band's dressing room is? And so this guy said, Sure, come with me. And he walked me into this beautiful wood paneled oak room. And there was like a conference table, you know, nice chairs, and there was a deli tray, and they'd put all the liquor out, all the stuff on our rider. And usually what I tried to do was don't put it all out at once. Put a couple six packs in there. Don't put any of the hard liquor in until I tell you, because I try to, you know, keep them from, you know, drinking too much too early. The venue was the University of California, Davis. It was a cushy kind of place. And I really remember walking in the room and saying, this is just too nice. It's too nice. Something bad could happen here. After soundcheck, Peter showed the band the oak paneled room where they'd hang out until the show started. The band was Paul Westerberg, Bob Stinson, Tommy Stinson, and Chris Mars. I showed him the dressing room and I said, you know, guys, we've got to just, you know, look at this is a pretty nice room. Let's try to do our best. And Chris, like, made some comment. Yeah, okay, uh, sure, no problem. And he picked up the bucket of beer on ice and just took it and flung it at the wall. The next thing I know, they just had destroyed the room. They all got liquored up and it was a shit show. I mean, it was just terrible. I mean, they were like sculptures with the, uh, you know, deli tray on the wall or whatever. The seats were ripped up, you know, the foam was taken out of the seats. I think they smashed a, a phone. And, you know, I was just like, oh my God. After the show ended, the band hit the road. At a pit stop later that night, Peter made a phone call. I called into our booking agent, Frank Riley, one of the best booking agents in the world. I, I called up just to check in. And Frank gets on the phone and he goes, what the hell happened in Davis? When you get to Fresno, he said, I don't want you with the band because there's a warrant out for your arrest. As the manager for the replacements, Peter's name was on all the legal documents. So when the band trashed the green room, flung salami at the walls, busted the phone, Peter, not the musicians, was the one held responsible. After he promised the band would pay for the damages, the warrant was rescinded. Peter went through a lot with the replacements. Nearly 40 years later, 
I met up with him at his home in Los Angeles to talk about his music career. He's written a memoir called Euphoric Recall. It's a reference to his ability to remember the good times and forget about the bad times, especially when he was drunk or high. He's sober now. Years ago during treatment, a therapist warned him about remembering the past too fondly, saying he might be tempted to revert to bad habits. But he can't help himself. He's good at remembering. Uh, my name's Peter Jesperson. We're in my record room. A friend of mine recently referred to it as my laboratory, and it's sort of record room office here in North Hollywood, California. Tell me how many records and books and CDs and everything you have here. I have no idea. I mean, I don't really count them, but I suppose I, I actually, I did recently or a few years back alphabetize the 45s, and there were about 6,000 of those. Um, LPs, I don't really even have any idea. I couldn't even guess on LPs. There's, you know, a few thousand, I suppose. Inside the crowded room, there's a cardboard cutout of Al Green, photos of Curtis Mayfield and the Beatles, a giant pillow that looks like a cassette tape, and a cardboard box containing a piece of replacement's history. This is actually the rubber stamp from... Uh... The Replacement Stink record. That is fucking sweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> I have to hold that. Wow. Fuck school, fuck school, fuck my school. Teacher's got a butt like a mule. One of Paul Westerberg's greatest lines. Say that again? The teacher's got a butt like a mule. I mean, I thought that was so funny because I thought, I, I feel like I heard somebody say that when I was in school. We made this record really on the fly and uh, under the radar, um, largely because the first album took so long to make. The singer, Paul Westerberg, got sick of people saying, when's your record coming out? So this one we decided to record on the QT and, and we snuck it out in June of 82 and nobody knew it was coming and, and we actually were able to surprise everybody. The replacements weren't just Minnesota famous. After making a few albums locally, the band recorded and toured nationally. Rolling Stone ranked Let It Be, the band's 1984 album, as the 15th best record of the 1980s. Peter was in the right place to meet the replacements. He grew up in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and got zapped by the music bug early. <laughs> the first record he owned was a 45, Wipeout, by the Safaris. His parents gave it to him for Christmas. In junior high, his friends started a band called Gross Reality. They'd have gigs in like, you know, at, at golf course country clubs or high schools or backyard parties or whatever. And I'd help carry gear and set it up. I didn't play an instrument, so I just helped out. He also offered band members tips. I would sit and listen to rehearsals and, you know, I was pretty outspoken and would say you could do that if you did that faster it might be better or you know I mean little bits of advice I mean and, and this was all just friendly it wasn't any kind of me trying to run a show we were all just pals. In high school he got a job as an usher at the Guthrie and he bought a lot of records. 
I would bring my paycheck from the Guthrie and I would just walk into the electric fetus and I'd give it to the person at the cash register. And then I'd shop for probably an hour, hour and a half. And then I'd take my records up there. He'd ring them up and give me the change. I mean, I was probably buying five, six albums a week at that time. He also read about music obsessively. He especially liked a British magazine called NME. I just liked the way the, the English wrote about music. They wrote about it more as if it were, you know, a life and death matter. He liked it so much, he convinced his dad, who worked for a publishing company, to import the magazine so he could try to sell it for a profit. The first issue that I distributed was uh, the last issue of April 72, and uh, it had a flexi-disc on the cover with excerpts from the upcoming Rolling Stones album, Exile on Main Street. He got paid a nickel for every copy he distributed and a dime for every one he sold. But the venture failed. Turns out there weren't enough Peter Jespersons who wanted to read an obscure British music magazine every week. About this time, his mom told him, you've taken something that was meant to be a hobby and blown it all out of proportion. He didn't care. For Peter, music was often a religious experience. I mean, I really would get lost in the songs, certain songs. And so I, I knew there was something different, and I realized that that didn't happen to everybody. This, this might be kind of hard to do, but like describe how you feel or how you kind of got lost in it, or I don't know if you daydream or wonder or what. To me, it's that feeling where it's almost, oh, you, you get woozy, a little weak in the knees, and it's kind of like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking down. And I get this like really like, it's, it's like you almost want to fall. My name is Chris Osgood, and I live in the United States of America, in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Chris Osgood performed in one of Minneapolis's first punk bands, the Suicide Commandos. Like a lot of musicians back in the day, he hung out with Peter. Minneapolis had no place in the national scene at all. You know, we were not known for anything beyond being a, a blues town. Prince and the whole R&B thing had not happened yet. You know, that was in the future. So it was people like Peter that um, helped put Minneapolis on the map. Can you describe what Peter looked like then? Dashingly handsome. Are you kidding me? Chris first got to know Peter at the Minneapolis record store with a really strange name, or Folk Jogobus. Peter was a clerk there and later manager. We would go down and hang out at our folk um, as often as we could, you know, once or twice or three times a week and sort of soak up whatever was coming in. So it was just always a running conversation. Yeah, and he seems like, from reading this book and, and interviewing him, he seems like the kind of person who just loves, loves music. I mean, I like music, and I'm sure you probably love music, but he he loves music, but he doesn't make it himself. But yet when he find something that he's passionate about, he wants to share it. That's it. Yeah, he's a pure maven, you know, just absolutely into it for the joy of the music itself. And he never stops. Is once he discovers something, he has to turn everybody on to it. 
Yeah, I just remember after Patti Smith's Horses came out, and Peter said, you have to listen to this. Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. And then I would go back to our folk again. He goes, you have to listen to this. And I said, Peter, you already made me listen to it. He goes, we have to listen to it again. Thick, heart of stone. My sins, my own, they belong to me. Me. Peter didn't just tell people what to listen to during the day. He did it after sunset, too, inside a bar called Jay's Longhorn. After leaving the record store, he'd haul a couple of crates of records on the bus and head downtown to the Longhorn. Bands like the Commandos played there. He DJed before and after bands played. Jay's Longhorn was a really big deal. It was the place for punk and new wave. I used to go to the Longhorn to drink, dance, and listen to bands. One night, I slipped on some beer in the mosh pit, messed up my knee, and my buddies just dragged me over to a wall and went back to having fun without me. It was that kind of place. Soon after the Longhorn opened, Peter co-founded Twin Tone Records. Between 1977 and 1998, Twin Tone released more than 300 records. Bands like Babes in Toyland, Soul Asylum, and The Suburbs released albums on Twin Tone. Twin Tone was just a young pup when Peter and the Replacements started working together. The year was 1980. Peter is very famous for discovering, which he well and truly did, the Replacements, out of the big slush pile at Twin Tone, people coming in and dropping off cassettes. And Peter heard the Replacements and uh, was very, very excited became their sort of de facto manager and then their manager and so forth. Peter says it didn't happen exactly that way. It was more like he was at Orfolk and Westerberg dropped off the cassette. He promised to listen, but guys were always dropping off cassettes. And then one day he was doing paperwork. He popped it into the boombox and out comes Raised in the City, a song that would later appear on the band's first record, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash. He heard something in the tape that was going to be good, and he played it for the rest of us, by the way. I didn't hear it, and other people didn't, but Peter wouldn't say no. Ah, He he wouldn't take no for an answer. So you mean when you heard the cassette tape that Paul Westerberg gave Peter Jasperson, Peter thought, oh, yeah, this is fantastic. And you thought, eh. Or you thought, maybe. Mm, Somewhere in there. Yeah, no, I wasn't thrilled by it. You know, I, I didn't hear what was, I didn't have the capacity to hear what was going to, what was to come. And Peter did. Do you think it's a thankless job being a, a rock and roll manager? Yes. Why? Can you imagine? Having to hang out with these jerks, you know, just selfish crybabies and, and um, people that are desperate for attention, but they're broke all the time. 
I wouldn't want to be anybody's manager. And yeah, the, the replacements like to ruin things and smash things. And Tommy Stinson was so young that he needed a ride everywhere. So I would very often give him rides. And I had a little blue Datsun pickup truck. And I lived at 24th and Pillsbury. And uh, Tommy and I were there one night. And something was going on that got Tommy up on the top of my pickup truck, and he jumped up and down until he blew out the um, windshield. (laughs) (laughs) I hope to interview Tommy either later today or tomorrow. Ask him if he remembers that. I did talk to Tommy Stinson. All right, I think it worked. Let me put my Do Not Disturb sound up, and let's do that. All right. Let's go for it. What do you got? Tommy and I talked on the phone. He was in a hotel room on the West Coast. I began by asking him, what Peter was like when they first met. He's pretty much the same guy he was then, although sober now. We spent many, many, many hours hanging out, listening to music either at Orfolk or, you know, at, at, at his apartment at the Modesto. And, you know, I remember, you know, skipping school and walking into Orfolk to watch you know, All My Children and stuff with those guys. <laughs> what? All My Children? It was just a funny soap and it, you know. It was all about Jenny, the, the, the sort of the main, you know, sweet character and, and her trials and tribulations. <laughs> but, you know, to answer your question, I mean, yeah. Peter's the same, you know, guy he was back then. He still, you know, wakes up listening to music and goes to bed listening to music pretty much every day, it seems. And he's always been that way. And that's what you get when you're around him. Tommy was 13 when the replacements signed with Twin Tone. He was the band's bassist. I asked him the same question. I asked Chris Osgood, what makes a good rock manager? The best rock managers are basically just corralling kittens. I mean, it's really, it comes down to just managing the dysfunction at hand. Because that comes with rock and roll. You know, because musicians can often, you know, shoot themselves in the foot while trying to get to the place they want to go. And it's like, well, you don't have to shoot yourself in the foot to get there. You just got to go make a couple steps this way. <laughs> so I wanted to know, how did Peter do as the replacements manager? He did it well at times. And there were other times, you know, I don't think he could have done any better. And it didn't work. <laughs> you know, I think, um, you know, we were a hard, a hard band at that to probably manage, I would imagine. We, uh, social misfits, sort of more headstrong with the more alcohol you pour down our throat kind of thing, um, for good, bad, or far worse, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And he was telling me about UC Davis. Yeah, there's one. <laughs> Don't remember a whole lot about that one, except for, yeah, do want to get into all that. <laughs> yeah, I could hear the hesitation in his voice. Tommy gets tired of talking about the replacements wrecking stuff. I didn't even ask him about the Datsun pickup or the time the band busted a really nice RV that Peter had rented. I didn't ask about any of it. But I did have this theory about Peter being the kindly big brother who was doing his best to care for a bunch of drunk rockers who like to ruin stuff. You know, he was part of that. You know, we we all we all did this stuff with him in his apartment, you know, and uh, it wasn't PG rated and it was his place, you know. So, you know, there you go. Tommy pauses. Even on the phone, I can tell he wants to tell me something. We were all partaking. It was, And, you know, 
uh, I'm just going to be frank here. Um, as a 15-year-old kid, I didn't have a fucking connection for cocaine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the, the adults around me had that connection. That's how I ended up doing cocaine. But, um, you know, that's, you know, that's a whole other thing. Back in California, I talked to Peter about a lot of things, including one particular moment that seared into his memory. It was a day in 1986 when the replacement summoned him to the Uptown Bar for a band meeting. Paul Westerberg did the talking. Paul basically just cut right to the chase and said, you know what, I'm really unhappy with how things are going. I want to start swinging when I'm mad and I don't want you to be in the way catching any punches. And I realized exactly what was happening very fast. I'm being let go. At the same time, I thought, you know what? This is not the mean Paul Westerberg. This is pretty compassionate to word it like that. And so really once that was all out on the table, I said, okay, see you later. And I got up and walked away. For days, Peter couldn't quite believe what happened. We had been a team of five for six years, and we'd gone through a lot of shit together, and it broke my heart. But upon reflection, he realized he could have done better. I really did bring it on myself. It was really, it was, it was ultimately, it was my fault. I could have done better. I could have drunk less and been more responsible, and I was irresponsible. I had it coming. And then things got really dark. I think for the next, you know, few years, I was very aimless and uh, I continued to drink and I drank through 1990 and in early 91, I got really sick and I had acute pancreatitis and I went to the emergency room and I had three seizures and I was in intensive care for eight days. The doctor actually told me when I came to, it's a miracle you're alive. He said the toxic level in your body when you were admitted was just off the charts. From and alcohol? From alcohol, yeah. Which is funny because I was kind of a drug guy. I wasn't really, you know, I, I love drugs. And, and uh, I always thought if something's going to get me, you know, it's going to be a drug. Peter vowed to get help. There was more stuff he wanted to do. I can't die yet. I got a lot of records to make yet. I mean, that was really, that's my, that's what I do. I help people make records. That's what I've done all my life. And I needed to still make some more. I wasn't ready to go yet. He's been sober now for 30-plus years. In that time, he's met a woman, fell in love, got married, had a kid. He also got to do what he loved, helping people make records. He got a job at New West Records. Over the years, he's gotten to work with Dwight Yoakam, John Hyatt, and the drive-by truckers. But there are still a few he wished he could have helped. In 2001, New West came close to wooing Paul Westerberg. The possibility of working with Westerberg again made Peter giddy and a little apprehensive. What if the relationship crashed and burned? In the end, the project never got off the ground. Peter still has snippets of Westerberg's songs banging around his memory. The singer used to drop them by his apartment back in the day. One was called Gas Station Attendant. Part of it went like this. You were fixing your hair while I was checking your air. You caught me smoking at the pump. Another was called, It's Hard to Wave in Handcuffs. But the one that really hit Peter was, You're Getting Married. Part of the song went like this. 
You're like a guitar in the hands of a man that just can't play. You're like an inmate counting off the days. You're like a student on vacation waiting for school to resume. You're like a flower in the dark ain't never going to bloom. You're getting married. In his book, Peter wrote, It's hard for me to explain my reaction to hearing the song without sounding like a lunatic. But honestly, it frightened me. It scared Peter. He felt he had grossly underestimated Westerberg and his songwriting ability, and also his talent at touching the human soul. The songs that got away might be the toughest part of life. This story was written and produced for Mini Culture by Todd Melby. Breakmaster Cylinder composed two of the songs in this documentary. Their work can be found at breakmastercylinder.com. Other music was by The Replacements, Patti Smith, The Safaris, and The Suicide Commandos. Peter Jesperson's book is titled Euphoric Recall. It was published by MNHS Press. This story was mastered by Alex Simpson. For more of Todd's work, check out his website at toddmelby.com. Miniculture is a production of KFAI Fresh Air Community Radio in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Support for Miniculture is provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sinsulo. More episodes are coming soon, so make sure you're subscribed to Miniculture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios. Thanks for listening. Thank you.